Join me if you know the, if you know the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. The reason I started off with that song is because on January 1st, we celebrated the 250th anniversary, 250 years of this beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. It's a, a song that the church has been uh, singing for literally centuries now. Very rarely in our society do songs of any kind continue to be used widely and broadly for such a long amount of time. Even for 50 years, it's amazing to see a song continue to be in use for that long. But I have confidence that Amazing Grace will continue to be sung for another 250 years and beyond that. Why? In large part because of the importance of the contents of this song, the, the very, very powerful meaning of the words that are being sung in this song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace was first sung in 1773 at an Anglican church in a little town called Olney, England. That church was pastored by a man named John Newton. And Pastor Newton wrote the hymn in large part as a response to the work that God had been doing in his own life. Newton did not grow up in a religious home. How many of you can relate to that? He didn't grow up with a mom and dad who pointed him towards the Lord. He grew up in a very secular lost home and he gained a reputation early on in his life as a troublemaker. He attempted to become a sailor in the Queen's Royal Navy in England, but he was kicked out of the Navy because he was constantly getting into trouble. Still hoping to make his living on the seas, Newton took a job as a captain of a ship that transported slaves from Africa to England. Later in his life, Newton shared about a time when he was sailing and his ship came upon a terrible, life-threatening storm. The waves were beginning to crest over the side of the boat. The winds were howling. His life and the lives of every person on that ship was in absolute jeopardy. And in that moment... John Newton began to turn his eyes to God. This glimpse of his own mortality woke him up and helped him to see his need to repent of his sinful ways and to seek God's mercy. Now, over the years to come, Newton would be transformed by God from a, a, a foul-mouthed sailor, a rebel who did what he wanted to do regardless of the law, into a kind-hearted man who delighted in serving the church and cared greatly for others. He soon left his trade. He poured himself into studying the Bible. And in 1764, he was ordained as a minister. And shortly thereafter, he began to serve as a pastor, a prefect uh, of the church in that small town of Olney. Now, in reading the word of God, John Newton had become convinced that the African slaves that he used to transport were made in the image of God, just like him, just as all people are. And he began to work alongside a man named William Wilberforce, a Christian politician in the parliament at the time, who tirelessly labored together to abolish the slave trade in England. The two would later collaborate to build a home for freed slaves 
in, a, in the place called Sierra Leone. God is the only one who can bring about transformation in the life of an individual like John Newton. And he chooses to do that according to his amazing grace. So this morning, I want to look at an important passage in the Bible, in the book of Ephesians, that's going to help us to understand the grace of God, what it is, what it means, and why it is vital to a person experiencing salvation in Jesus. So if you have your Bible app and you want to follow along, that's great. Otherwise, most of this verse is right here on the, uh, on the board in front of you. I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look this morning at verses 8 through 10, okay? So I'm reading from God's Word. <clears throat> For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. They were spoken to a group of Christians in the town of Ephesus, which is a city that is now located in what we would call Turkey. But just like every word of the Bible... They are actually God's words, not just Paul's words, but God's words given to us through his messenger, through this apostle. Paul had helped establish the church in that city, and here he is reminding the people of some of the fundamentally important things that should shape the heart and the mind of someone who follows after Jesus Christ. That's really what a Christian is, someone who is trusting in and following after Jesus Christ. Paul says to them, for by grace... You have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from poverty? That's not what he was thinking of. Saved from sickness? That was not what Paul was mentioning here. No. Jesus surely cares about the whole person. He cares about our financial state. He cares about our health. He cares about our relationships with others. But the great danger that Jesus came to this world to save people from is the danger of sin. Sin is the breaking of God's law. God is the creator of all things. He is in charge of the universe. And through special revelation, through his word, the scripture, God's made it clear that we aren't totally free to live any way that we want. His law tells us what is evil and what is good. And we are challenged and commanded to do what is good and to reject what is evil. God's law is there for protecting what is good. Breaking any law whatsoever has consequences, right? And as everyone here knows, the consequences of law-breaking gets greater and greater depending on the seriousness of the crime, right? We don't punish all crimes exactly the same. If I drive my car in the carpool lane and there's nobody in the car with me and I get pulled over, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to get a ticket. And I'm going to have to pay a bunch of money for that. Probably not too much, but I'm going to feel it, right? But if I were to commit treason against my country, right? If I were to betray our country to some foreign power, or if I was to take the life of another person, those are much more serious crimes, right? I could spend the rest of my life in prison, or I could, worse, I could be executed for that, right? So depending upon the seriousness of the crime, the punishment has to fit it. Now, sin is the breaking of God's law. And that is a much more serious crime than people want to admit. For it is treason of a cosmic magnitude. God is the one who gives us our very life. 
If you're breathing right now and your heart is beating, that is happening. Not because you're willing yourself to, to have a beating heart. Not because you are making yourself live. You are alive because God is allowing you to live in this universe that he has created by his word. God is the one who gives us life. And when we disregard God's law, we do terrible dishonor to the one to whom we owe everything. So the grace of God is given to overcome the very real and serious debt of our sin. But what is grace? And how can grace save us? To understand a thing, it can be helpful to think about the opposite of that thing. So let's look at our verse again. It says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul tells us here two things that grace is not. Grace is not your own doing. So it's not something that you have brought about. It's not something that you have earned. It's not something that you create. Grace is not your own doing. And it is not a result of your works. So grace is not a reward to you. Grace is not a payment for your obedience to God. And I am so grateful that that is the case. You cannot save yourself. We often think that we can, don't we? We often think that we must. We think, man, if I'm going to get my life together, I've got to, I got to change my life. I got to do the right things. I got to get disciplined. I got, I got to put more effort into this. But sadly, every effort that we make to wash our sin away falls short. And it falls short for two reasons. First of all, our sin is so great, it can only be paid for by death. Remember when we talked a second ago about how, depending on how severe and serious a sin is, the punishment will be greater. But when we sin against God, the scriptures tell us in Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That means the consequence of us breaking God's law is that we deserve to have our life taken away from us. That's a very, very serious consequence. The second reason why we can't save ourselves is that almost as soon as we do Anything at all that we hope is going to cancel out our sin, what are we doing the next second? We're sinning again. We're breaking another one of God's laws. And so once again, we need, we need grace. So we cannot save ourselves. There is only one person who lived completely free from sin. And he's not in this room. He's definitely not in this pulpit. All right? There's only one person who has lived completely free from sin. And the scriptures tell us who that is. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the very Son of God. God who came down and took on flesh, became a human like us, took on a human nature so that He could live like we live under the laws and requirements of God. But He never broke any of them. He kept the law perfectly. He did not inherit the sin that we inherit from the first man who broke God's law. And he didn't break any of the laws himself. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's God's words, okay? Jesus never sinned because Jesus was literally God in the flesh and God cannot sin. He cannot break his own law. God the Son 
knew that there wasn't any amount of work that we could do to set ourselves free from the penalty of sin that we had earned. And so God the Father, unwilling to let us all perish in our sins, sent His own Son Jesus to live a perfect life so that He could then take that perfect and spotless life and offer it up in our place. That's what Christ does in dying on the cross. He didn't just do it because He was being an example of bravery. He didn't just do it uh, to show us that He loved us so much that He would be willing to die. He did it because He was literally paying the penalty for the sins of all who would trust in Him. If the wages of sin is death, then sin must be paid for by death. That means you can't pay for your sins by going to church or putting a few bucks in the offering plate or bringing some of this food that you're going to get today home to your neighbor. That doesn't get you out of your sin. Jesus Christ is the only thing that can get you out of your sin. This is the most ironic thing, maybe, about the song that I started this morning with. We sang a little bit of Amazing Grace this morning. And it's interesting that in that whole song, it's all about Jesus and His work and the results of His work, but it never actually says the name of Jesus. But don't make any mistake. That song is about the grace that can only come through God's Son. Jesus was willing to go to the cross and to die like a sinner in our place. But he was more willing and able to do more than just that, right? He didn't just die. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead to show us that he has power over sin and he has power over death. So if your faith and hope is in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in his work and received his gift of grace, then the penalty that you owe to God for the sins you've committed against Him has been paid in full by the suffering of Jesus Christ. If you're saved, you're saved by works, which to some Christians seems shocking because you hear over and over again, you're not saved by works. You are saved by works, but not your works. You're saved by the works of Jesus Christ, God's Son, because you couldn't have done the work. You weren't qualified to sacrifice yourself for anyone else, let alone pay for your own sins. But Jesus Christ was willing and able to pay for the sins that you committed. If you are a Christian, you have been saved by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And He did that for you, not as a payment for your good deeds, not as a reward for your obedience. He did that for you as a gift. He gives it freely to the most wretched of sinners. He was willing to save John Newton, the author of that song Amazing Grace, before he was saved. He was a slave ship captain. That's a terrible thing to be involved in. And yet God, through His amazing grace, woke John Newton up, gave him a new heart, and saved him. So if you are saved, you are saved by Christ's work. This gift of salvation is not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can deserve And so guess what we can't do? We can't boast about it. We can't brag about our salvation. If I'm a Christian, I have zero right to look down my nose at someone who is not. Because I am just as wretched a sinner as anyone else is. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would not be forgiven. And I would be in debt to the Lord God. So we as Christians must hold a high view of all people, knowing that they were made in the image of God and treating them with dignity and respect, even though they haven't earned it, because we know that our salvation is a free gift 
a gift of grace. Now that's what grace is. Grace is a gift you don't deserve. It is something that someone gives to you even though you've done nothing to deserve it. And that is what salvation is. And how does it come to us? It comes through faith. Now this is, this is an amazing fact, friends. <clears throat> it comes through faith. Faith is something that we don't naturally have in God. Your heart naturally wants to have faith in yourself. Your heart does not want to have faith in the Lord. You might even believe in God, but to have faith is something more than to just believe He is there. Does Satan believe in God? Yes, he does. But does Satan have faith in God? No. Does Satan, Satan trust in God? He does not. So to have faith is to do more than just believe that God is real. It is to put your trust in Him. To receive humbly the gift that He has given and to receive humbly the fact that He alone is God and deserves our worship and praise. A blind man cannot gain his sight by simply opening up his eyes, can he? He's still a blind man. But God, being rich in mercy, has chosen to give the gift of grace to His people. And He gives them that gift by means of faith. So if you are a Christian, you once were blind to the things of God. You did not understand the weight of your sin. But through His gift, His free gift of a new heart and a different mind, your blindness has been taken away and you've been given eyes that can see the truth. And when you see that truth, you no longer want to fight against God. It's no longer your life's ambition to be the God of your own life. But when God changes your heart from the inside out, now you want to respond to that free gift of grace by worshiping Him, by trusting Him, by obeying Him, by serving Him, and by telling everyone you can about the grace that you have received in Jesus Christ. And so before we begin today, do you have faith in Him? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand how serious your sin is? Because you can't really trust Him until you know the weight of what you have done to offend Him? Do you see the pricelessness of Christ's life? And do you understand that when He died in the cross, when, died on the cross, that He died in the place of sinners to pay the true legal debt of sin that you owed to God? If you have given to your, your life to Jesus, are you living as if you really trust Him? Would somebody who is watching your life be able to look at you and say, there's somebody who follows after Jesus Christ? I pray that as you sing that song, Amazing Grace, and this is not the last time you'll hear it, that song's going to be sung for generations. But when you hear that song, that from now on you will remember that the song is not just a beautiful piece of our history, a beautiful tradition, or even a, a, a nice melody or tune that just sounds beautiful, but that you would recognize that that song is a tribute to the free gift of grace that is only found in the Son, Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, we love you and we thank you for the time that you have given to us this morning. Help us to have repentant and humble hearts before you. We know that our sin is great, Lord God. We see the weight of sin all around the world and we can't just think of sin as something that happens out there. It's something that happens in us as well, God. So overcome that sin, Lord. We pray that you would be transforming your people day by day through that process of sanctification, that we might become more like Christ but we also recognize, Lord God, that he is the only sinless and perfect one. And so let us give him glory, just as John Newton gave glory to your son by 
writing this amazing song that we now sing in response. I pray that you would give us hearts that are quick to give glory to the one who saves, and that is Jesus alone. We love you and we thank you for all these things, God, and ask that our morning would be a blessing to your name. We pray this all through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.